Welcome to Page Parley. This is the show where we speak to authors about their work. This is a special episode as we're speaking to one of the great romantic poets, a man who made the best of tragic circumstances, Mr. John Keats. Thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Your accounting setup is most intriguing. I hope it's not too amateurish. Well, it's my first time being interviewed, so you can pretend that it is very professional and I won't know the difference. <laughs> so, Mr. Keats. You can't call me that for the whole interview. Call me John. Well, John, you are one of Britain's most famous poets. What drew you to the medium of poetry? That is rather complicated. Before that, I initially trained as a doctor. When I was growing up, I was forcefully aware of my mortality. My youngest brother died when I was just old enough to understand what death meant. My father was killed when he fell from a horse and fractured his skull. I was at school when it happened, and I still remember how blunt the teacher was when he told me that my father had gone. And then, Mum had the worst kind of slow death. Tuberculosis. Some people said we were lucky. That it gave us time to say goodbye. They clearly hadn't experienced anything like it. The illness was so painfully drawn out. You find yourself breathing in time with them, trying to fill their lungs. That last death set my mind on medicine. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you for speaking so honestly about such a difficult time. For me, speaking about such things is the best way to understand and process. Were you able to find some happiness as an apprentice surgeon? It was a placid time. My tutor told me that I had a distinct aptitude for medicine. I thought this was the best way that I could help people, and I threw myself out the task. However, I wasn't happy. I had already begun to see poetry as a way to provide solace to people. When I trained at the hospital, I set my free time aside to research and practice composing poems. Joy is transient, but so important when one is suffering. Medical minds had not saved my brother or my father, but poet's words had soothed my mother's final days. We have a quote from your brother George. He said that he feared you should never be a poet, and if you were not, then you would destroy yourself. Did you feel like you had to choose between poetry and medicine? I did. There was a safe career to take, but after qualifying as a surgeon, I made the hard decision to focus on poetry. Can you tell us a bit more about your first collection of poems? Unfortunately, my first collection undersold. I'm sad to say that my publishers saw it as a loss. I was never afraid of failure. For those that crumbled before criticism would never be among the greatest. I changed publishers and renewed my study of literature. Your commitment to writing is very inspiring. And speaking of inspiring, which writers inspired you? I was particularly galvanised by Wordsworth and Byron. To me, they were living legends. However, if I had to pick a favourite, I would have to choose Robert Burns. How interesting. I'm more of a McGonagall person myself. You must be joking. No, I am perfectly serious. But back to your point. Did you learn a lot from reading Burns's work? Burns's writing was so lyrical and honest. He was someone that I wanted to try and be like. After I met Charles Brown, we decided to go to Scotland to try and learn more about him. Now I've heard stories about your adventures with Brown. Could you tell us more? How did you meet? I met him in 1817. It was one of those strange moments where you feel as if you've known him before. Spark was lit in my stomach, and I somehow knew that this man was going to be very important to me. I quickly came to understand that he was one of the most loyal people I would ever know. Almost immediately after meeting, we had arranged a walking holiday. So the plan is that we travel together from Liverpool, across Cumbria, through Scotland, 
Northern Ireland, then on to Mull, Iona, Fingal's Cave, up Ben Nevis, and finally to Inverness. All on foot. You'll be the death of me, Keats. Don't be silly, Charles. It'll be good for you. Although, I don't know that is quite the right walking gear. Why a tartan suit? These are my father's colors. If I'm going back to his country, then I want to display them proudly. Well, you're quite the spectacle, my Red Cross knight. What about you in that ridiculous hat? It looks like a beaver is trying to eat your head. Well, we'll see who's laughing when the temperature drops. And you managed to walk the whole way? This was a research trip for the materials to build my first epic poem, so I need it for fully experienced life in Scotland. I would have missed so much if we had travelled by coach. This is Stalk Guile Force. The locals say it's 70 feet high. It's magnificent. The thunder and the freshness. The intellectual tone that surpass every imagination and defy any remembrance. I shall learn poetry here and shall henceforth write more than ever. Well, can you do it from some shelter? The mist has soaked me through. We must visit Wordsworth. Rydal Mount is right on our path and it would be ridiculous not to call it. And while we're drying off, you could ask him to critique your work. Charles, that would be boorish. You can't shove your work under a man's nose. Then what are all those papers in your bag? Well, it would be equally rude if he asked to see my work and I didn't have any on hand. <laughs> of course. Look at the mists on the mountain. No wonder Wordsworth composes such beautiful works. With this landscape to feed his muse, the man will be higher than Milton. Knock on the door, then. Can't keep the great man waiting. I can't. I'm too nervous. You do it. He won't bite. Yes? Good morning. Is Mr. Wordsworth receiving visitors? Oh, I'm very sorry, but he's away from home. Working with Lord Longsdale on his election campaign. He won't be back for a week or so. Longsdale? That dreadful conservative. How could he? It's such a shame. We'll call another day. But he's the father of the romantic movement. How could he be such a turncoat? Never meet your heroes, John. Come along, we still have this beautiful scenery to admire. And then on to Scotland. At least Burns can't let you down. He's been dead for 22 years. It's a real shame that he let you down, but at least you got to see the beautiful falls. I think the best part was a very damp and grumpy Charles. He looked like a dog trying to shake itself dry. <laughs> that must have been a sight. Was Scotland as exhilarating as you had hoped? It is an almost supernatural land, and our path through some of the most delightful parts of the country, the road lay halfway up the sides of a green mountainous shore full of clefts of verdure and eternally varying. Sometimes up, sometimes down, and over little bridges, going across green chasms of moss rock and trees winding about everywhere. Is this the place? Yes, this is St. Michael's Churchyard. Very gothic. And where is Burns? We can't miss him. They built a grand mausoleum for him. It should be around this corner. Could it be that giant white building sticking out of the landscape like a sore thumb? Well, that's one way to put it. Yes, that's a carving of Burns and his muse. It must have cost a fortune. Practically a temple, isn't it? Very neoclassical. Why didn't they try to keep it in the style of the other monuments? There's a beautiful dark mournfulness to them. It is a little... out of place. Certainly not to my taste. It's large enough to honour the man, but the style is too grandiose. Burns wrote about the experience of the working man. This just doesn't suit him. The town, the churchyard, and the setting sun. 
The clouds, the trees, the rounded hills all seem, though beautiful, cold, strange, as in a dream. I dreamed long ago, now new begun. The short-lived, paley summer is but one. From winter's ague to one hour's gleam, through sapphire warm their stars do never beam. All this cold beauty, pain is never done. Beautiful, very melancholic. You do him proud. Don't be silly. I'm not worthy of him. Keep writing like this, and you will be. There will be an even bigger and gaudier shrine on your grave. Heaven forbid! Well, if this story tells me anything, it's that you are incredibly dedicated to your poetry and put a lot of time and effort, several hundred miles worth, into it. Yet you manage to make it feel so effortless. How did you do that? If poetry comes not as naturally as the leaves to a tree, it had better not come at all. Does that mean you've never had writer's block? Well, researching composition techniques definitely lays the groundwork for inspiration. So... Yes. I have occasionally been stuck. Did you come across any other particularly inspiring monuments? We did indeed. This time it was nature's handiwork. It came upon us suddenly and was startlingly close to the beach, looming against the horizon. What on earth is that? It looks like some kind of unearthly island. Hearken, thou craggy ocean pyramid. Give answer from thy voice that sea fowl screams. When were thy shoulders mantled in huge streams? When from the sun was thou broad forehead hid? Are you going to write that down? Yes, obviously. Don't ruin the moment. Well, don't forget it. I have a perfect memory. Fine then, say it again. You scared the muse away. <laughs> so where did you go next? After marvelling at Elsa Rock, we headed straight to Alloway, where Robert Burns was born. It's almost like a shrine for poets, a true site of inspiration. It's a pub. What? But it's his home. This place where the best and brightest of Scottish lyricists was formed. Maybe he was born in a pub? Shut up, Charles. Come on, John, don't take on so. Listen... Let's go inside, we can get a drink, and some of the old boys might know a thing or two about Burns. Whiskey made me lose track as I tried to write a verse on the place. My vision was dimmed and my mind was sent reeling. I distantly recalled reciting Tom O'Shanter to Brown's amusement. In that dizzy evening, the thought crept into my mind that Burns was becoming a myth, a legend. Rather than a thinking and feeling man, he was now a story like the ones that he had written. What was it about Burns that you loved so much? A lot of the great poets came from wealthy backgrounds, but he was the son of a farmer. My father was an ulster of a London stable, and I had always felt as if that was holding me back. But if Burns could write great poetry, then maybe I could too. He didn't let anything stand in his way, and I wanted to follow that trail that he had blazed. When first my brave Johnny lad came to this town, he had a blue bonnet that wanted the crown. But now he has gotten a hat and a feather. Hey, brave Johnny lad, cock up your beaver. Cock up your beaver and cock it for brush. Over the border and give him the brush. There's somebody there who will teach better behavior. Hey, bro hey, hey brave Johnny lad. Cock up your beaver. Charles, get down from there. You 
drink up, Johnny. We've got miles and miles to walk before we reach Fingal's cave. On the final leg of our journey, we met Misty and Rizzling Red. Our clothes were soaked through and we walked over the dreary mountain. <laughs> we should stop. You're not well. Do you see anywhere to rest? Then for God's sake, take my coat. We're not far now. I hope so. My shoes have finally given up the ghost. Look, the soul has come right off this one. Never mind that now. I can see the cave. John, wait. Blast these shoes. In Fingal's cave, I found a cathedral of the sea. Everything was on an epic scale and shrouded in a gloom of purple. Here I found the beginning of Hyperion. Giants peopled my mind. Whispering stories of wars that had cracked on the rocks and broken the stone in ways that only gods could. This landscape was the birth of my epic. Of course, you're, you're talking about Hyperion. My Miltonic exploration of the fall of ancient gods. You really managed to capture that 17th century style of writing, that solid, respectable feeling and the heavy use of symbolism. It, it really was a huge piece of work. Did this make the journey worth it? I would say so. Scotland had become my teacher. The stunning views were visual poetry, and all I had to do was translate it into words. That pilgrimage with Charles would shape my writing for the rest of my life. And what did you do after your trip? It should have been a happy time. But sadly, it wasn't long after the journey that my brother Tom died of tuberculosis. Uh, I'm... I'm sorry for your loss, John. I swore after my mother died that I wouldn't let any of them suffer like she did. You did the best you could. No one could have looked after him better than you. What good did I do? He still died. Your stories kept him happy. Sometimes that's the best you can hope for. Listen, I've been wanting to ask for a while. Come and live with me. I have a house in Wentworth Place. It's not big, but it's right next to Hampstead Heath. You can go for walks and write all you want. You wouldn't have to worry about rent. Charles, that's far too generous. It really isn't. It's quite selfish, really. I've grown used to your company. In all honesty, there's no one I'd rather live with. Thank you, Charles. I... Yes. Yes, I will stay with you. I moved in 1819. I wrote like I never had before. The words came so easily, sliding into my mind and down onto the paper. The great beauty of poetry is that it makes everything, every place, interesting. I should write from the mere yearning and fondness I have for the beautiful, even if my night's labours should be burned every morning and no eye ever shine upon them. The sensuous imagery formed word paintings. I saw such sights and people in exquisite detail. The fervour of the Romantic period had me in its grasp, and it wrung the words like water from cloth out of my brain. Putting words around nature, supernatural, unearthly forces, and the complexities of human emotion became my only goal. In Wentworth Place I wrote Hyperion, Lamia, my six great odes, and so much more. But it wasn't all solitary work. Brown was always the social butterfly. He gathered a circle of friends made up of some of the most influential people of the time, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Percy, and Mary Shelley. They were full of revolutionary ideas, and very sympathetic to democratic reform. 
Unfortunately, this political activity drew ire from certain critics. Were the critics harsh? Blackwood's British critic and quarterly subjected my words to the sharpest abuse. Their remarks were devastating for my career. They said that I had no refinement of language and that Harmony fled from me in wonderment. Oh, that is brutal. They described our friend group as a desperate gang. Both we and the critics used our pens as sabers in a duel. Did those around you support you? They did, especially Charles. I was closer to him than ever before. He was endlessly patient with me. He transcribed my poetry, kept me financially secure, and made sure that my work was published. We also wrote a play together, Otho the Great. So I am safe emerged from these broils. Amid the wreck of thousands I am whole. For every crime I have a laurel wreath, for every lie a lordship. Nor yet has my ship of fortune furled her silken sails. Let her girdle on, this dangered neck is saved by dexterous policy from the rebel's axe. Could you try to sound a little less dull? It needs more energy. I'll give you energy. My ship of fortune furled her silken sails. Let her glide on, this Danger neck is saved by dexterous <laughs> policy from the rebel's axe. <laughs> Can you sit still? I'm struggling with your profile. How many times have you sketched me now? You should know my face by heart. Maybe you just have a forgettable face. Why don't you ask our new neighbors to sit for you? I'm sure they have nothing better to do. I don't want to damage our new acquaintance with my scribbles. That brings us to your fiance, Miss Fanny Braun. It was her family that had just moved in, wasn't it? Yes. The house was divided into two apartments. Charles and I lived in one, and she lived in the other half with her family. Miss Braun was a beautiful, elegant, graceful, silly, <laughs> fashionable and strange. She was one of the keenest readers I have ever met, and was unsurpassed in her wit. Sometimes... Too much so. She could be a tease. And what did Charles think of her? I think he was a little jealous. She's a distraction, John. She's keeping you from your work. Don't be ridiculous. I've written her a dozen or more love poems. If anything, she inspires me. That's not the same. What happened to your great epic? Has that too given way to this cuckoo? Don't speak like that. Do you know that she's out every other night dancing with army officers? She represents every aspect of society you dislike. She sees being connected with one who is working up his way against poverty as disgraceful. You're lying. I heard it from her myself. She'll break your heart, John. She does not love you as much as I... as much as you love her. You're jealous. I... That, that's not... You want her attention for yourself. What? He looked so genuinely shocked that I knew I was wrong, and I apologized almost at once. Charles tried to be civil with her for my sake. Eventually, they became polite acquaintances, though nothing more. Despite this, and the increasing affection between Fanny and I, we were never officially engaged. Why is that? Marrying a man with poor health prospects was not something her family would have agreed to. I did give her a ring, though. It wasn't grand. I couldn't afford that. But it was a promise between the two of us that only we had to know. Bright star... Would I were steadfast as thou art. Not in lone splendour hung aloft the night, 
and watching with eternal lids apart. Like nature's patient, sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores are gazing on the new soft-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and the moors. No. Yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever in a sweet unrest. Still, still to hear her tender-taken breath, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. Your luck really seemed to be turning around. Your third book was published in 1820, and I've often heard it described as your greatest work. And it finally got you some recognition. It had been a good success among literary people, and I believe had a moderate sale. You sound surprised by this. I was no stranger to harsh critiques. I was sometimes considered returning to medicine, since it could be no worse than writing poems, if it touched more messy. Sometimes it felt like I was hanging my work up to be fly-blown on the review shambles. There's a rumour that Byron said that you were snuffed out by an article, a negative review that framed you as a cockney poet. Byron had an axe to grind with the reviewers. I won't say that it didn't affect me, but I think it had more to do with the two hemorrhages I had. I knew the signs of tuberculosis. It was February when I first began to notice something was wrong. I couldn't write. I felt like my body was giving up. Charles was shocked when I came home from a trip to town in very bad health. Into bed now. You need to lie down. It's cold. I'll get you a warming pan. I'll light the fire too. That is blood in my mouth. What? Let me see. It's on the sheet there. Bring me the candle, Charles, and let me see this blood. How can you be so calm? John, look at me. I know the colour of that blood. It is arterial blood. I cannot be deceived in that colour. That drop of blood is my death warrant. Did you recognise it from your time training as a doctor? Tuberculosis had taken my family, and as fate would have it, I was to follow them. Thank God for Charles. He was the best nurse I could have asked for. He took care of all of my paperwork, bills, letters, household affairs. He kept everything going. Sadly, even he could not stop the inevitable. The doctor advised I travel to Italy for the warmer weather. I was against it. However, my friends very generously raised the money to send me to Rome. What else could I do? I left on the 13th of September. I wanted Charles to go with me, but he had been on business in Scotland that week. He rushed back, but he didn't make it in time. His ship came into port the same night that mine left. I couldn't have written it more tragically if I tried. I knew I'd never see him or Fanny again. Did you write to them? Only to Charles. I asked him to share what he thought was appropriate with Fanny. I didn't want to upset her. In truth, I was afraid to write to her, to receive a letter from her. To see her handwriting would break my heart. I wonder, is there another life? Shall I awake and find this is all a dream? It must be. We cannot be created for this sort of suffering. Oh, child, I can scarcely bid you goodbye, even in a letter. I always make an awkward bow. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. John Keats was many things. 
perfectionist, a risk-taker, a stubborn mule, and one of the greatest artists of our time. It seems unfair that he's gone, yet I cannot say how lucky I am to have lived with this wonderful man, even if only for a short time. They were the happiest years of my life. I could not keep him safe from sickness, but I will secure his legacy if I can. I am dedicating myself to the preservation of his manuscripts. At every opportunity, I will promote his writing. Perhaps his death will make others understand what beauty the world has lost. But now thy youngest, dearest one has perished, the nursling of thy widowhood who grew, like a pale flower by some sad maiden cherished, and with true love tears instead of dew. Most musical of mourners, weep anew, thy extreme hope, the loveliest and the last, the bloom whose petals nipped before they blew, died on the promise of the fruit, his waste, the broken lily lies, the storm is overpassed. Charles Brown went on to write The Life of John Keats and many other articles. Until his death, he continued to keep his friend's legacy alive. He kept all of Keats' letters. Fanny Braun went on to marry Louis Linden and had three children. She kept and treasured the ring and letters from Keats. Keats touched so many lives in such a profound way in his short life, and his work continues to do so to this day. Far from a failure, he is now seen as one of the great romantic poets. In Page Parlay Past, the presenter was Rosie Beach, Keats was played by Ben Hall, and Charles Brown by Jose Gonzalez. Special thanks to Ellis Jameson. This has been a Yorick Radio production.